I have a dreams card or what some people might call a goals card, where since 1999, I've been writing to myself, essentially, what are the values and things that are important to me in my personal life, my health, my career relationships. So I set these specific directions and goals for kind of every 12 to 16 months. And so when you ask me, how do I make the decisions? I'm usually looking backwards to my card because I'm not really good all the time to be at that high level. So sometimes I'm up, sometimes I'm down. And when you're down, you can read the card and say, okay, here's where I really want to go. Or sometimes when you're up, you can say, okay, well, this used to be important to me, but now it's less important to me. So it's kind of that evolution. Welcome to the Picture of Wealth, or TPOW as we call it. I am your host, Dustin Service. I'm excited to have Trent Kitch on the Picture of Wealth, or TPOW as we call it. Trent, thanks a lot for coming on the show today. I'm glad to be here and it's great to connect. Trent, this is uh, this is super special. Like from my heart, we've known each other since we were like elementary school kids to now that would be uh, 35 almost years later that we get to see the evolution of where you've come. So, you know, if you think back to when you were a 10-year-old kid, playground, mm-hmm. Glenmore Elementary, did you envision you would be here was this at age 10, your vision of success or you're in your home uh, in California? Is this what it was or is it something different? It is different. I think when I was a kid, I used to draw planes all the time and I, I wanted to be a pilot, you know, and then evolved into being a, wanted to be a major leaguer, you know, wanted to be a baseball player. Then it evolved wanting to be in business. And yeah, you know, I guess there's been many evolutions of the dream and it's been amazing what has happened since you and I used to run around in Eagle Drive. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. That's right. We're going to have all the show notes so people can look up your story and look up your bio and all that different stuff that people want to know about people. But I want to get right into the stories of a lot of our listener would be right at the moment that they are successful and they kind of have a hint of that but they haven't realized it or they need something that gives them the permission to maybe open the door to to realizing they are successful. And it isn't making money. It's more, oh, I am successful. And help us understand, was it Saks? Was it Doja? What -hmm. transaction was it? Or what, and not specific numbers, but like what business or what moment where you looked at Rhea and you said like, I think we can start worrying about different things now. Do you remember that? Well, I guess the, you know, definition of success has always been taught to me that there's always somebody more wealthy, somebody always, you know, faster, somebody better at their certain thing. But if you can define your own success and achieve those dreams or goals or be pursuing a worthy ideal and achieve that goal. I think that's the definition of my success and how I define success. And there's many categories to the bucket, let's say that you fill. But um, I think my success or the success I like to share to people is define what is successful for you and in what attributes and achieve those dreams. 
back in the sax thing that came out of you fishing wasn't it and then you wanted some different underwear so it may, yeah. maybe give us a two minute of that story because i think it's important setup for where i'm going yeah it, it was uh in the queen charlotte islands in the summer of 2007 and i was fishing with my dad for salmon and wearing one of those big red ocean suits like they wear on like the deadliest catch for example and it was in the front of the boat for like three days and you know you're not talking to your dad for three days there's nothing to talk about so <laughs> it's quiet there for like hours and i was just sitting there in the front of the boat and i was uncomfortable as like all guys can relate to and had a little bit more contact than i was you know <laughs> liking and so I was just staring off onto the horizon. I thought to myself, how could I reinvent men's underwear to prevent contact and be more comfortable? That was the question in my internal. Yeah, yeah. And fortunately, I was a baseball player once upon a life, and I was a back catcher, and I'd always been around a lot of garments and designs and things to try to protect you when you're blocking baseballs or getting foul tips. And so I'd, I'd been kind of an inventor or a creator or <laughs> the guinea pig of all these things for decades. And then what I did on the boat was in my mind's eye, I just drew the sack side panels in like a 3D XY kind of how yeah, yeah. Works, like blueprint. And then uh, morphed all the jocks and all the sliding shorts and things that I had worn over the years into what was sacks in the boat. So I was designing it in my mind just quietly. And then when I got back to shore, I drew it, started drawing it in the cabin and started drawing the sack side panels. And, and then it was just, again, fortunately that I was going back to school at that time to do my master's in business, my second year of my MBA. And you had to do a new venture project. Oh, or, perfect. Or what was called a Ivy client field project, which was like a consulting project. So I told the school about my idea. It didn't have a name yet. And they thought it was a bad idea. And they thought it was like kind of a joke or they didn't <laughs> really up to the standards. But then a few professors at Ivy really got in my corner and let me try it and said, you know, let him try it if he thinks it's a good idea. And so I went to the Royal Bank and I uh, had that tuition receipt for Ivy and I needed to get some money to start my business. So I went and applied for a student loan with my tuition receipt and said I was going to use it to pay my school. And then I used that 20000 in instead as my startup capital and went to Fanshawe College and found a fashion designer at the fashion school who had previously done patterns for underwear and the fashion school dean thought I was just there trying to meet girls and thought it was a bad idea <laughs> and then hired a really great fashion designer to do the first patterns and then on the weekends from school, I would go down to Toronto and to the fashion district and go to different fabric suppliers. And I just started building up the idea step by step and figuring it out as I went, you know. So kind of a summary of that is within three months from September to December is when I had my first prototype and I had enough money to make the first 200 pairs and 
bought bags and printed off the labels at my apartment. And then I started selling them at the cafeteria, like the student union building at the University right, of Ontario. Right. I just like pulled out a table and set up my little booth in the middle of the school. And then I sold them on the weekends. I would drive down to Toronto the first weekend there and set up a booth or set up on the street in front of Lululemon on Queen Street West. And I sold pairs there on like the Saturday and Sunday. And that's how I sold my first 200 pairs. And that was enough to... Uh... I was like, that's kind of like the, the three minute of how SAC started. Well, yeah, it finishes off with a, uh, a great exit to... Who did you exit to? It was a company called No Limits Distribution. That was our distribution partner. Nice. So they bought you out. You parlayed that and you put that into the cannabis industry, took a company public. Yeah. Exited that or are you still part of that? No, I basically, again, kind of was just inspired one day sitting with one of my friends and heard that the... The Canadian government was going to federally legalize cannabis. And so I just understood, I guess, from paying attention to how when laws change, it creates opportunities. And so I had just recently sold a good portion of my previous business and then collected a few great people to sell them on the idea to potentially start this business. And another great co-founder of mine was uh, Ryan Foreman, who I worked with at Saks. And he and I and Rhea, my wife, started Doja. And then very soon thereafter, we were fortunate enough to have another Kona gentleman, Jeff Barber, join as the CFO. And so the four of us started Doja. This was early. This is like, you know, 2015. At that time, it was called Northern Lights cannabis company and we made an application to the federal government to have a license to produce and so there was hundreds of applicants and thousands of applicants and we were there very early and then also we were very polite to the balance of power that health canada had and were very efficient in getting through the process and, and we're lucky enough to be one of the first licensed producers. Right. I was paused there for a sec because there is many moments that I see big decisions or I see, you know, you have choice that's fraught with risk. There's lots of risk, lots of relationship risk, lots of financial risk, lots of personal mm. time waste risk. How do you make decisions? It's a big question, but mm. when you've got a big decision to make... Yeah. Is there a process that you go through to mitigate your risk, maximize opportunity, and sort of ultimately make a decision and move forward on offense instead of being, you know, sort of defensive? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's like a two-part answer. The, the first part is that I have a dreams card or what some people might call a goals card where since 1999, I've been writing to myself essentially what are the values and things that are important to me in my personal life, my health, my career, relationships. And, and I, so I set these specific directions and goals for kind of every 12 to 16 months. And so when you ask me, you know, how do I make the decisions? I'm usually looking backwards to 
my card and because I'm not really good all the time to be at that high level. So sometimes I'm up, sometimes I'm down. And when you're down, you can read the card and say, okay, here's where I really want to go. Or, yeah. you know, sometimes when you're up, you can say, you know, okay, well, this used to be important to me, but now it's less important to me. So it's kind of that evolution. And then with regards to how I decide to spend my time and, you know, that is the most valuable resource we all have. I'm very curious about certain things. Things come to me sometimes, and it's not necessarily when you're trying to force it, but I just try to put myself in the right environments and around the right people where you're staying current. And I'm, I'm really always trying to measure my risk, of course, but also take advantage of the things that I have experience in or the social capital and the, the success that might be from taking on a project. So for example, today I'm going to downtown Los Angeles to look at some historic buildings because it's always been a dream of mine to redevelop a historic building. And so not that I'm buying that deal today, but since I've been down here, I'm building my knowledge and going through Excel and writing what is the price per square foot of land and buildings and kind of just looking at what is the playground, what is the field before I would make an investment. But that's an example. Yeah, no, it's a good example. And it's a good segue to the Tread Kitsch at 22 had a different vision for sort of like got to make money and I'm going to put myself on the map. You're already on the map now. People can look you up online, figure out roughly probably what you made or what you make. It's like you're financially fine for, you know, probably your life. So so what keeps driving you now to want to go take on that stress of maybe a building or if if it isn't necessarily money or is it the money? There is something that's truly uh, still important to keep growing and achieving that. I think it's more creativity than anything else that I'm interested in and design and, and things like that, that stimulate me. And then by a byproduct, maybe it's money after, but I don't think my first instinct is money. And I think my first instinct oftentimes is like, you know, there's this theory about competition. If you compete with everybody else, you're in that lane versus if you create something or create something new, you create a lane. So I'm always trying to kind of find those spots where I can create something or be creative or be part of a new industry that doesn't have incumbents and create my own lane. What resonates with me is I, I think my MO was always like get in school, you know, very logical thinking. And when I see the path that you have taken, you were more of a, you were an athlete for one, you know, which that's got its own thing. And then you were more on the creative side, like your buddy group in high school, first year university was definitely more out there group. And almost all those guys have become successful in whatever they're doing. So there, there's no right way to do it, I think is my point. And, uh, you know, you have a vision at the start and then you still come back. So I appreciate what you've done. And I would love to know sort of who along the way has helped you sort mm -hmm. of get over some of your own mindset blockages. So if you've 
been, mm. you know, maybe I'm going to do this opportunity, but then someone has helped you with a different perspective and, you know, maybe who that person is or what did they say to you to help you see a different side? And then you went for it and it became a good opportunity. Well, I'd say a few names came to mind during that question. Like there's, there's definitely some people that have been huge mentors to me and instilled great new confidences in me. And uh, obviously my parents being the first, my parents were entrepreneurs and definitely taught my sister and I to believe in yourself and rely on yourself and independence. And, and those are things that were really important values that were taught to, to my sister and I, and then some coaches that I had some incredible coaches in baseball and, and even, you know, kind of coming up, but Greg Hamilton is another name the national team coach for Canada, the junior national team who believed in me and put me on a new direction for sure. And then at university, Stuart Thornhill, my MBA professor, who was the first investor in SACS. He was someone who was really in my corner and believed in me. Bob Norse, the founder of the, the Bombay company, who was an Ivy MBA professor as well, who always made me feel smarter than I was, you know, like yeah. we, you're in this peer group of super competitive, smart people. And he always would remind me it's about knowing what questions to ask versus being able to answer every question. And then being an example of how to start a company and go overseas and find low cost region supply. Like when I was developing SACS, these experts were all around me at Ivy. And that was such an incredible incubator before there was really like incubators, right? Yeah, but I was, I was in one there. And then since that time, Mike Dalton, another person from Kelowna who I really admire and look up to. And so I've been blessed as I think everyone who's been through the chain has helped someone as they've been helped. So I've been very blessed by a lot of people who've have helped me. Pastor Tim Schroeder is another name that comes up. So yeah, I, I think I've been really blessed. And then my sister, she's always been a huge inspiration to me. And and I look up to my sister and she's like the reason I even got, got into Ivy because she <laughs> went there before me and I would have like never even got in there without her. But to your point about certain points in life and little spots which change your trajectory, all those people changed my trajectory positively. Yeah, hundred percent. And one thing that I've always admired about you would be uh, your level of humbleness and sort of keeping friends with the people you've been friends with for a long time, even though your wealth is has accumulated. Is is there anything specific when I say the word humble or staying humble that you'd like to prescribe by or sort of subtle wealth or how do you value that? Yeah, I think it's a, a balance, of course. Right, I'm confident in my abilities. But I'm also humble. And again, like my dad used to say, you know, if the story is good enough, other people will tell it for you. Right. So, you know, that's a cool thing to think about. And then I used to prescribe to that in SACs and any business I do as well. If the, the product or the service is good enough, that means other people will tell their friends or other people about it. And, and that has been true in all my business success as well. So I think that is a little jewel that is both personal and business that I live by. Uh, how do you compartmentalize taking people's money, investing it? You've obviously had some big wins and it's worked out. How did you 
digest, well, what if it doesn't work out? Or is that something that, you know, you have a, just an open discussion with the investor about? Well, I, I think the first time with regards to Saks and raising capital for the first time ever, that was unique in that there was no value for the business. I just thought it was a, a million dollar idea. So the first time I took on money, it was uh, five, 5% 50,000. And that was my MBA professor. And that was both because we just thought it was a million dollar idea. He wouldn't be interested in it if he didn't think it was. And I wouldn't be interested in going out on the road by myself if I didn't think it was. Yeah. So that's how I set the first round of sacks. Nice. And, and then onward from that, you learn a little bit more about, you know, what's the multiples in your industry? What's the growth rate of your business? You know, so then you start to become more intelligent about raising capital. And then when we raised capital for Doja, really, it was a founder's capital for a long time. Like myself, Ryan, Rhea, and Jeff funded it for years. So right. then we took on outside capital because it was always a goal of mine on my dreams card to take a company public. So that was like, you know, getting the amount of investors and getting, yeah, definitely, like you say, friends and family involved in the very early round when it was like the highest risk. And, and so... In that case, it really worked out incredibly for everyone who was in those pre-seed rounds and early rounds. But then again, conversely, I, I've had losses as well. You know, I've invested in private businesses since then and, and lost capital. And I've been involved in the cannabis industry since the highs and now through the lows. So there's definitely uh, wins and losses, I think, in any business person's career. But ultimately the group of investors sometimes gets smaller because everyone has a little bit more capital. So you don't need as many people right. at the table. But then also, again, if you're going to be doing something uh, in a public company, you're going to have tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of investors. I think it's different in case specific, but starting a business and taking on investors capital is really always about honesty and integrity and doing the best that you can do with what is under your control as the CEO or founder or co-founder, and then being honest about the things that are out of your control, be it, you know, the market conditions or interest rates or, or things like that. Yeah. So you're, you know, the captain of the ship and they're betting on you as a captain and they'll understand if it was a hurricane came through, but you were still the captain, you did everything the best that the captain could do. Right. That's the way I think about it. So when you put that goal card thing down, take a company public, outside of now the feeling of, of the monetary, mm. would you still put that down based on how much work it is? Yeah. Yeah, I think I would. And certain ideas take a lot of capital and a lot of sophistication too. So you can attract uh, certain talent when you have the share as compensation, let's say, also mm -hmm. lets you uh, be involved in M&A to a certain level because you have the, sh the share as currency. At the same time, you're for sale every day because the public market is saying you're worth this today and your peer group or the larger cap companies are always paying attention to that as well. Right. So I think I, think I wouldn't not go public again but i do think there are a lot of instances where it doesn't make sense to be public at certain revenue levels and 
you see a lot of great private businesses rolling up private businesses one day in the plans to go public. So I think, again, it's really case specific. And if you can trade on a higher exchange, all the better, you know, so if you're, we were on the CSE because that was the only thing we were allowed to be. At, but if you can climb up to the the venture, the TSX or NASDAQ, NYSE, you're a very serious company, right. <laughs> you know, to qualify for those levels as you climb. Yeah. But yeah, I think it's very case specific for all of your listeners. Is there a mix, like when you're running your company to take it public, opposed to running a business to collect income and do the best for the client? Can you blend both? In my head, I think, oh, go public means we're going to run this business to like maximize value, exit public, then it's someone else's thing, and I'm out maybe staying as a minority shareholder, where if you're running something private, small, and just sort of like really making it, you know, just chug along and, and doing the best, can it be either or, or can you make it and like good for the end user and good as a build it to exit? There's so many incredible private businesses out there, you know, that are great businesses. And once you take a company public, you really have what I, I like to think of or share as two, two products. Now you have your actual business that still has to run and still has to be managed and still has to produce its goods or service. And then you have the stock, which is now its own new product that is, has to be understood and, and is its own vehicle has investor relations has different shorting pressures has you know so many things are happening just on that front now too so as a ceo you really have to understand there's almost two products now once you go public there's the, the stock price which matters when you're you know raising capital or if you're doing m a and during periods where you're not doing those things it, it still matters of course to the investors in yourself as a shareholder but there's again different periods when the stock really matters a, a lot you know if you're trying to do financings or again if you're in an industry that is facing headwinds or or tailwinds it's, it all matters trent thanks a lot for coming on the show today i really appreciated the time and definitely enjoyed watching the journey uh and it, we'll continue to watch uh what's going on where can listener find you online and follow uh your next good idea well, I just am available. I'm on Instagram, Trent Kitch, but also I wish all the listeners and yourself, you know, good luck with their journeys. And I'm still obviously on mine. And <laughs> I just encourage all the entrepreneurs and people out there to believe in themselves and, you know, take a little action every day that your future self will thank you for. Trent, thanks a lot. And uh, I might come down and visit you down uh, on the coast. So. Good, good. Stay in touch. Thanks. Have a great day, Dustin. You too. Thank you for tuning into this episode. If you enjoyed the show, please like and rate the show, share with a friend, or use your new knowledge in your next conversation. If during the show something gave you a pang of inspiration, motivation, or sense of uncertainty, act on it now. Get the clarity you're looking for. Find the permission you seek. Go to servicewealth.com to discover how others are learning how to take Fridays off, or buying a recreation property, or spending more money. If you're an organizer of an event where you believe my philosophy on finance and lifestyle design would be applicable, go to servicewealth.com and book me as a speaker at your next event. If you want a copy of our new book coming out soon, send me a message on Instagram or Facebook and we will be sure to get you a first copy.